Listener supported. WNYC Studios. It's the Brian Lehrer Show on WNYC. Good morning again, everyone. With us now, Mark Tracy, who, over, who, who covers arts and culture and also the American Jewish community for the New York Times. He previously covered contemporary Jewish life and culture for the Jewish news organization Tablet, and he co-edited the 2012 book Jewish Jocks, a collection of 50 original essays about Jewish sports figures. In the last few months in this post-October 7th world, Mark has been writing periodically about the dynamics within American Jewish families around how to think about the war in Gaza and how to think about Israel generally at this moment in history. Just last week, he had an article called Navigating Israel's War When One Spouse is Jewish and One is Not. That's in the context of so many intermarriages involving Jewish and non-Jewish spouses for generations now in the United States, so many mixed couples. He had one called, Is Israel Part of What It Means to Be Jewish? Exploring that from various modern-day perspectives. And he had one called, Jewish American Families Confront a Generational Divide over Israel. We'll talk about that one the most now and invite Jewish listeners of different generations to call in and have part of what may be a difficult conversation that you're having in your family. In that article, Mark notes that Gen Z and young millennial Jews often see Israel as an occupying power oppressing Palestinians, a shock to their parents, he writes, who tend to see it as an essential haven fighting for survival. So these generational divides among Jews and also among many Democrats of any background have potential implications for the presidential election, too, so they are potentially very consequential in that way. So we'll start there with Mark Tracy, who covers arts and culture and the American Jewish community for The New York Times. Mark, thanks for joining us. Welcome to WNYC. Thanks for having me. And I should also shout out uh, a couple of those articles were co-authored with my colleague, Emma Goldberg. Great. And we want to invite Jewish listeners experiencing a generational or other divide within your family over Israel and the war in Gaza to call in and say how you're navigating it. And also, if your own perspective on whatever side of that is broadening as a result of what your loved ones are saying, or maybe even just changing as a result of the ongoing war, or as a result of October 7th, as a result of Netanyahu, or anything else, and whether your family is becoming more polarized as your own opinions perhaps change. 212-433-WNYC, 212-433-9692. And listeners, heads up. We're going to save some of our lines for Jewish listeners 40 or younger, and some for those of you over 40 at 212-433-WNYC. And we acknowledge, as does the article, that there are plenty of people within each age group with different opinions, so not to stereotype or overgeneralize, but there are generational patterns emerging that are stronger than in the past that Mark's article cites polling on. So that's the context of our invitation to call in. And if we get too many calls from either age group, over 40 or under 40, we may have to bump you to clear the line just to say if that happens, it is not to censor your views, okay? 212-433-WNYC, 
1-800-273-9692. And Mark, just to frame the generational divide statistically to some degree, can you start with the results of the poll that you cite in the article by the Democratic pollster, GBAO Strategies? Yes, and it was it is a Democratic pollster, but uh, was for a nonpartisan uh, organization. So I I gather it's fairly trustworthy, um, and it's a very respected pollster of the American Jewish community. Um, they found that um, they asked specifically about Biden's uh, strong support for Israel, and this was in November when you know the the so-called bear hug of Biden towards the Israeli government was really in full swing. He was he was very much backing them. Um, 82% of those 36 and older supported the president in the American Jewish community. Uh, just 53% of those 18 to 35 felt that way, which on the one hand is is still a majority, of course, but on the other hand is is much, much smaller. And, and this comes in, in the context of decades of very strong support for Israel among American Jews, even among liberal American Jews, even among uh Democratic American Jews. So, for example, you tell the story of the Kornblatt family. The parents had moved from Wisconsin to Tel Aviv. Their daughter is a grad student at Berkeley. How did their views contrast with each other's? Right. And, you know, it's a kind of the classic tale. And you're right to say that, obviously, there's exceptions on on all sides. But, um, you know, the parents uh, being, you know, of the baby boom generation, you know, came of age at a time when Israel was often seen as an underdog. Um, they very much uh, are supportive of Israel. Um, as you say, they moved to Tel Aviv. Um, and uh, their their daughter, um, you know, is 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 Jewish, you know, and 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 casts her kind of opposition to Israel as a Jewish state um in Jewish terms. Uh, but you know, that's obviously a big difference uh, in terms of how how you look at it. And, you know, for her, it's much more about Israel, again, you know, as kind of an oppressor or an occupier um, and, and, and an entity preventing Palestinian self-determination. You refer to that daughter's position that a permanent ceasefire feels morally urgent. And yes. you report on another student, part of a group at Brown University called Brown U Jews for Ceasefire Now. Did that come up a lot in those words, a permanent ceasefire? Definitely. And again, this was month, This was a couple months ago. And obviously, the calls for that are still uh, quite high. And, and the divide there is between, you know, people more supportive of Israel might say, well, a ceasefire effectively hands Hamas a victory. You know, Israel has said, the Israeli government has said that its goal is to eradicate Hamas. Um, and a ceasefire would obviously entail saying that that's probably not a completed task. Um, the flip side is that, you know, we're now at a place where uh, thousands and thousands, I believe, currently we're up to more than 26,000, according to Gazan officials. Uh, Palestinians have died in the last several months of the bombing and the invasions, which is, you know, an, an awfully high number um, and an awful number. And um, many of them are are, are are likely minors, given that, after all, about half the Gaza population is under 18. Um, so for for some people, including some American Jews, that is the front boiler kind of issue is just the sheer number of deaths. Right. Um, on permanent ceasefire, a person more mm -hmm. supportive of the war might say a permanent ceasefire as opposed to fighting Hamas with more attention to civilians. 
permanent ceasefire is code for surrendering to Hamas, allowing Hamas's military to survive and attack Israel again, a la October 7th, as they say they want to do. Is it clear to you what permanent ceasefire means to those using that term as opposed to a temporary one for humanitarian aid and hostage and prisoner exchanges, which is the Biden position? I mean, I don't want to speak for them. And, and, and I think the short answer is no, it's not completely clear. Um, I think probably a lot of people use that term envisioning slightly different end games. Um, but as you point out, we've had a pause in the past. There have been some prisoner exchanges. Um, there are still Israeli captives in Gaza. Um, and whereas a permanent ceasefire would presumably, you know, restrict Israel's ability to continue attacking Gaza with with an aim towards, you know, killing uh, Hamas uh, militants, killing Hamas leaders and their command structure, um, which, yeah, certainly in theory would imply, you know, that something like October 7th, which was just a, a truly traumatic event for the country, um, a kind of unprecedented event, uh, even for a country that's had its share of uh, attacks and and attacks on civilians even, uh, you know, it's not clear that uh, with a permanent ceasefire, Israel would be guaranteeing such a thing couldn't happen again. Um, and I think that's what a supporter of, of, of Israel's continued uh, campaign would say. Are you finding that either generation is influencing the thinking of the other? Like, Yeah, great question. Are, are young Jews for whom Nazi Germany or 2,000 years of Jewish history may be more of an abstraction starting to see Israel in a broader context than just the occupation and blockade of their lifetimes? Or are you finding parents whose thinking about Israel may have been grounded in the immediate Holocaust period, say, coming to think more about the length of the occupation or the, the 20th century act of moving in by the hundreds of thousands and taking power over an existing population? Mm -hmm. This is certainly anecdotal rather than something I have backed up in polling, but I'm finding it's more the second, you know, I, I, in other words, older parents being maybe not fully converted, but certainly moving more in the direction of their more uh, left wing uh, critical of Israel children. You know, uh, I, I, I think there's just a lot more exposure in younger generations to um, for among American Jews to the Palestinian narrative. I spoke to one father uh, who said he heard the term Nakba, which is the Palestinian word for the kind of birth pangs of the Israeli state, the founding of the Israeli state, combined with the displacement of hundreds of thousands of Palestinians. That's um, it's the Arabic word for catastrophe. He said, you know, the first time he heard about Nakba uh, was from his child, who had learned it in turn at a college class. And 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 I want to clarify, since I know there's a lot of worry about maybe justified i don't know but there's certainly a lot of worry about you know college campuses right now and jews but this is someone who took a class at columbia with uh rashid khalidi who you know certainly is very critical of israel and is a is a palestinian intellectual but is is also a you know a, a credentialed scholar of the issue who has written books on this um you know teaching a class about the palestinian narrative including the nakba and that's how the the father heard about it and you know the father didn't completely changed his beliefs overnight, right? But certainly saw it a little more from the Palestinian perspective and, and is perhaps now a little more trepidatious in his in his support just for Israel. Let's hear what some callers of different ages are saying uh, as we continue with Mark Tracy, who has reported on the generational divide among Jewish families in America 
which exists to some degree, as cited by the polling. Not it's not overwhelming, but it's significant uh, since October seventh, and even before October seventh in j- this generation. But now it's really being put into the spotlight um, during this war in Gaza period. Gary in Manhattan, you're on WNYC. Hi, Gary. Hi. Um, I'm a former uh, director of the reform movement, and um, there was a letter that was released uh, several several weeks ago by the descendants of um, our generation of leadership of uh, the reform movement who took a, a very different tack uh, in terms of their response to the war uh, between Israel and, Ga- and in Gaza uh, with Hamas. And um, what what I found to be very interesting is, uh, as Mark pointed out, uh, those of us of my generation all lived in Israel. Uh, most of us are rabbis. Um, if you were in that leadership position, you were probably a rabbi. And therefore, you spent a requisite year of study in Israel in your first year of rabbinic school and went back many, many, many times. Um, and we raised our children with what we thought were the best ideals of uh, Judaism, especially uh, tikkun olam, the idea of repairing the world and making the world a better place. And we sent our kids to visit Israel, but it was kind of like religious tourism. They did, that generation did not, <clears throat> unless they went uh, and they went into the rabbinate, many of them did not live there and did not have that kind of attachment to Israel in their religious identity. Um, and the conversation has been a difficult and painful one. Um, and we raised our kids with agency. I did. Um, and that meant that I, I really wanted to respect what, what my children were saying. And two of my three children were signatories of that letter. Um, and in fact, they were very worried that it was going to be upsetting to me that they were going to be signing that letter, but they felt that they had to. Um, and it opened up a conversation. Um, and I recognized that we were looking at Israel from two very different points of view. I lived in the pre-1967 Israel years. I remember Israel, as Mark pointed out, as the underdog. And in 1967, Israel rose up and became a superpower, and my pride in Israel grew. My children's understanding of Israel is Israel was always a dominant force um, with a superior military ability. So we, we really needed to talk, and we spoke yeah. from two different points of view. Let me ask, has your attitude toward the war changed as more and more civilian casualties pile up, and President Biden, who started out so supportive, is getting alienated himself in his recent comments? Um, I, I have to say, uh, I have to agree. Um, early on, I felt Israel needed to do what it needed to do in order to rid the Palestinian people of Hamas, um, because Hamas was as, as poisonous to the Palestinian people as it was to Israel. Um, on the other hand, now, so many weeks into this, um, I, I, I have to, uh, my, my heart goes out to um, the Palestinian people who simply want to live. And, and, uh, and there is no Arab country that has reached out to give aid or succor or help to the Palestinians. Not one. Not one has offered to say, come here to live as refugees until things calm down. Um, so I remember uh, at the end of the Shoah, uh, 
um, Jews coming out of the Shoah. There was no country that wanted us. And the only mm-hmm. thing that gave us any hope was that we had a, a we were offered a state. And Gary, I'm going to leave it there and get some other people on. Thank you very much for your call. We're going to go next to Sally in Brooklyn. Sally, you're on WNYC. Thank you so much for calling in. Hi, how are you, Brian? Doing okay. Thank you very um, much. <laughs> sure. Um, I just wanted to call. I'm 26 years old. I just wanted to speak like for my generation and just respond to kind of what um, your guest was saying about how it's unclear what permanent ceasefire means. Um, for those of us who support Palestine, permanent ceasefire means permanent ceasefire. Um, it means an end to this conflict and this fighting. We cannot countenance this unjust colonial war, especially as young Jewish people um, and just as young people of conscience in general. And Israel has really proved that it is not interested in waging war with Hamas. As we can see by the attacks in Rafah, Israel is purposefully targeting civilians and Palestinians. And I just also want to quickly respond to what the last caller was saying, which is just completely false, that Arab countries have supported Palestinians. And by the way, like the world supports Palestine. The world is with Palestine. New York City is with Palestine. We love Palestine. Palestine will live forever. Um, so acknowledging that people will disagree with your characterization that they're purposely going after civilians, what would you say to those who argue that a permanent ceasefire by Israel would wind up being a one-way ceasefire because Hamas is not going to abide by a permanent ceasefire and there will be more attacks? I mean, Hamas is waging an anti-colonial armed struggle, which is their right uh, under the UN Charter. Like, this is what needs to be done to ensure that Palestine is able to have, like, self-determination and its own state. You know, like, we've seen that the lie of the two-state solution is just consistently, like, Israel will not make any space for Palestinian self-determination. So... So it you're is going to, to sort of the, the, the yeah you're going to the the hottest of hot button possible places right which is you are explicitly saying October seventh was justified correct me if I'm hearing you wrong and that you know as some of the protest signs have said in, in some contexts and some of the protests that. Uh, revolutionary violence is central to decolonization. So is that is that your position? And do you think you speak for a lot of people um, in your generation or who support a permanent ceasefire on the Israeli side? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, 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 that's what I'm saying. And that's what a lot of people are saying. And I think that, you know, we can look at struggles to give the land back in so many different places from South Africa. I mean, South Africa was an armed revolutionary struggle, you know what I mean, against apartheid. Here in the U.S., like, indigenous people are struggling to get land back, and they would be justified to use revolutionary violence against this empire. Same thing with Palestine and Israel. And and what would you say then to Jewish people, either in Israel or just sympathetic with Israel, who would say, look, for 2,000 years of Jewish history, Jews were oppressed or slaughtered, more or less wherever they were, and wanting, unlike, let's say, the British Empire, that kind of colonialism, to settle in Israel, not to run colonies for power and profit, but as a safe haven 
rather a little minority carve-out, which could be seen as a progressive thing in those terms, in their own ancient homeland, that's that's the position. Are you having this conversation with your parents, by the way, or anybody in your family? <laughs> well, my parents are on the side of the Palestinian people, but I am, ha- you know, I am having this conversation in the streets, and I'm having this conversation with elders, and I would just call on all Jews that, as oppressed people, our solidarity should stand with oppressed people worldwide. Like we, be, our history should teach us that nation states will not save us. That we are, you know allies with the dispossessed across the world and that's where we need to stand especially in this time um so i would just say like it's actually to me the most offensive thing that could be possibly done is to commit genocide in the name of the jewish people like that's so much more offensive than Mm -hmm. you know critiquing israel sally thank you very much for your call and obviously people will disagree with the characterization of genocide um but um Mark, I could just imagine a lot of people's heads are exploding right now Mm -hmm. hearing somebody call up and explicitly support um, Hamas, what they, what, you know, people listening might be considering terrorist attacks as justified um, violence. And this is, this is sort of the, uh, this is, this would be the ultimate tension that you also do touch uh, in your article a real third rail of actually seeing this as justifiable revolutionary violence. Sure. And, you know, I think a lot of American Jews feel, well, a lot of American Jews feel solidarity with the Israeli state. And also a lot of American Jews feel a solidarity with other Jews, which, you know, uh, Israel is the country in the world with the most Jews in it. Um, and so obviously, and, 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 and another thing is that the kind of the American Jewish establishment for decades has, uh, and I don't want to make this sound more cynical than it was, but has certainly used Israel as a means of kind of uh, helping perpetuate uh, Jewish peoplehood, including in America. In other words, the point wasn't just to get people the point of, you know, putting uh, coins in your Jewish national fund box or in going on birthright, the program that sends you on free trips to Israel was not only or even necessarily primarily about Uh, inculcating support for Israel among American Jews. It was about uh, inculcating a kind of pride in one's own Jewishness um, for American Jews. Um, And and that's a a very big part of the community. And so, yes, um, your your caller there um, also represents um, a, a smaller faction, to be sure, but a faction of the American Jewish community. And one can see how, you know, clearly that they would find a lot of pushback in the American Jewish community when they say things like that. Let, let's see, we heard from a 67-year-old and a 26-year-old in this multi-generational call-in. Here's Diana in Bay Ridge, age 38. She told our screener, hi, Diana, you're on WNYC. Hi, thanks for having me. Um, I feel definitely generationally and politically in between the two callers that you had. Um, I remember growing up with um, Yitzhak Rabim trying for a ceasefire, not a ceasefire, sorry, trying for peace. Um, I grew up um, going to Hebrew school. It was very much the pro-Israel story. We weren't taught um, at all, I think, the true facts of what happened, what led to the Israeli-Jewish state. Um, And then as an adult, I've learned more, and it's been very emotionally hard to really come to terms with the um, 
with the true facts for how the um, Jewish state was founded and all the amount of Palestinians that were displaced and continued to be displaced. Um, so I feel very emotionally torn, but politically, I feel very much on the side of wanting a ceasefire and knowing that um, whatever it is right now can't stand. I'm not a I'm not an international relations expert. I can't give you the answers shockingly can give you the answers to what's happening right now. But I know that what the status quo can hold. As somebody who says you've seen this from both sides, has your opinion of what needs to happen changed as this war has gone on? Maybe you just answered that by saying you're leaning towards ceasefire. Um, But you're, you know, you're steep in the complexity of it, like maybe more than the previous caller. Yeah, and I think um, I think my evolution has been over the last ten years. I've learned more. I got I've gotten someone involved, with, if not now, which is a group that um, calls for. I, I don't know the exact language. I don't want to use it wrong, but I would say the end of apartheid, and um, but also acknowledging like the Jew- Jewish trauma and pain, which I think those things live together. Um, and I think yeah, I think in the last few weeks since um, the war has gone on, I've only been further hardened in this, but it is difficult because I see my grandparents are Holocaust survivors. I see particularly older relatives, um, the trauma that they feel and how really the Jewish state feels so important to the Jewish identity. And I understand that because during the Holocaust, there really was nowhere for a lot of people to go. So I don't think I, while politically I'm, I think more aligned with your younger caller you just had, I also don't think it's can be as black and white knowing that there wasn't a home for Jewish people um, in the aftermath of the war and really throughout history, right? It's diasporic people. So I think there's, um, I think there's complexity for what happens to Israel, right? Like, what does it mean if you're a state that if they end the apartheid, what happens, right? What are the answers? And I think a lot of people who Jews who live in Israel don't want to be treated the way the Palestinians are treated now, right? I think that's a real fear. So I don't know the answers. I don't think Mm -hmm. You know, I don't think you displace people, but I like on both sides, right? But I also think what's happening now is, as a Jew, I don't like seeing this in our name. Diana, thank you very much. So Mark Tracy from the New York Times, who has reported on intergenerational uh, arguments and dialogues within Jewish American families. We got in our three callers almost a perfect representation of your article. Um, yes. The older one in a certain place, the youngest one in a certain place, and the, the cusper, right? The one who's yeah. a sort of older millennial r- r- right in the middle. Um, yeah. So, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's just all so fraught. Great, great job by your screeners. And um, my colleague uh, in the opinion pages of The Times, Ezra Klein, has referred to that middle generation as the straddle generation because they kind of yeah can assimilate both both of the views and you know spoiler alert your caller in that generation was 38 I'm 39 it's very much my generation um I remember the second intifada you know that was very much a part of my life you know Israel uh being victimized by um you know bombings targeting civilians uh and I remember Yitzhak Rabin and I remember Rabin being killed. But I also remember, you know, the last 15, 20 years of uh, of Benjamin Netanyahu's governments. Um, and I, I do think one thing that uh, is important to considering how younger Jews feel about Israel is the Israeli government under Netanyahu for basically all of the years since 2009 um, has become increasingly allied with the Republican Party including uh, Donald Trump. And as with everything else in American politics, um, I think Donald Trump 
is a big polarizing figure. And, and Donald Trump is not, you know, according to polling, is not popular among American Jews, certainly among younger American Jews. And I sometimes wonder whether the uh, alliance between uh, Netanyahu governments and and the Republican Party and, and Trump um, has harmed Israel's image with um, American Jews, especially my age and younger. Well, as I often say at the end of segments on this topic, we won't settle the Middle East today, but uh -huh. we continue to try to have thoughtful conversations that respect different points of view and recognize the aspirations and grievances of different groups of people and also the urgency of urgent situations. So thank you, listeners, for your calls. And Mark Tracy, New York Times reporter who covers arts and culture and the American Jewish community, thank you very much for helping lead this conversation. Thank you so much.